welcome you to the final event of the Fall 2015 New Writing Series. I'm Camille Forbes, writing faculty in the Department of Literature, and it is my pleasure to uh, welcome Amanath Rava, our guest today. And um, I will be taking the time, because there's always a good reason to introduce the introducer. <laughs> and so today, I will be saying a little bit about April Coletta, a third year MFA student, who will be introducing our speaker today. Her work is hybrid, mixed media, including photography, and researching the California waterways and drought. Her project is in conversation with documentary autoethnography. Her work brings her kind of bodily into spaces for examination, reflection, uh, photographic uh, uh, work, as well as her writing. And this has afforded her an opportunity to think about her relationship in, uh, her, of her work to our speaker's work. So without another moment's delay, let's have April Coletta here. Thank you. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Speaking in the microphones, you never get used to it. All right. So it's a really pl a pleasure today to introduce Amarnath Ravas. Rava. Um, he's a writer of incredible range. And when I say range, what I mean is his ability to engage language, to push expression beyond our illusion of scale. In Rarva's manuscript, American Canyon, distance is a unit of measurement, as real as the miles between California and India, and yet it is also a kind of haunting, an abstraction, where we lose our own ability to measure separation between places, people, reality, myth, text, memory, the living and the dead. It gives us a lyric kind of understanding through ritual, through interviews, images, memoir, dated and time-stamped by zeros. It is in the impossibleness of the cohesive idea of documentation that the text's range and fragments hold us suspended in vastness, where we must grapple with loss and the possibility of loss as the most intimate kind of connection and disconnection. It is a great honor to introduce, introduce sorry, uh, Amarnath Rarvas, closer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> author of the hybrid text American Canyon um, and his forthcoming text, The Glass House. He has performed at LACMA, Machine Project, USC, Cal Arts, the Hammer Museum, and the Sorbonne, as well as numerous other places I will not try to mispronounce. Um, <laughs> in addition to his writing and making videos, he is a musician with Ambient Force 3000 and has helped run and curate the beta level and hands-on social experiment in LA's Chinatown for the last 10 years. So without any further ado, uh, Amarnath Rava, come on up. <laughs> Thank you, that was quite an honor. Uh, I can't say I've experienced that yet, being introduced in such an elegant way. 
So, uh, so normally I read um, with, with video, so I'm gonna do that. Um, my book was um, published by Kaya Press, uh, and just a while ago. And uh, of course, you can't really bring video to the page. Um, so the way that uh, we decided to do it was to have um, little strips. So if you ever have a chance to see the book, you'll see that it has little strips. And they put it in color, which was a first, well, I think it was their second time, um, which also was really nice. Um, so you should, if you have a chance, look at their books, because they're, they're well made. And um, Sun Young, the editor, puts a lot of work into it. Um, so, uh, I'm from, I'm, my parents are from India, um, and uh, there's a lot of Telugu, which is the language that um, my family speaks um, in the text. And so, I'm going to tell you a couple of words so that when you hear them, you're just not, you're not confused. Um, so one of them would be uh, Nainama, which is grandmother, um, but on the father's side. Um, another is uh, Tataya, which is grandfather, but on the mother's side. Um, I think you know what karma is. Um, and if you don't, well, I'm sure you will at some point. <laughs> uh, uh, Shloka, which is which means prayer, um, and homam, which is a ritual but with fire. So um, I'm going to start reading now. Thank you for coming. Years before, or generations later, depending on who you are, my mother hits her head and says, na karma, which means my fate. I'm watching the Discovery Channel, and she is frying samosas. What do you mean, I ask? When she is at a loss for the right word, or tired, or has doubts about her son, she speaks in Telugu. The burden of what lies between us becomes mine. The samosas are almost ready. I enter the kitchen and listen to what she says. Behind me, a bald eagle feeds her young on a cliff somewhere in America. You know your tapia was a fool. He never worked a day in his life. And look at us now. All of us have to work hard. All he did was gamble away his money and when he needed to pay for something, like putting his kids through school, he sold a house. Now look, he has nothing, not even his own house. He's been re renting that for a year now. A couple of years ago, he took all the money he had left and built the only three-star hotel in Markiplier. It cost him 20 lakhs. Yesterday, Mame had called and said that Tate got really drunk with his partner, someone he trusted. He had him sign a paper saying that it was a government document for the hotel, 
to keep it under regulation. It turned out that your grandfather had signed away the whole hotel to this man, 20 lakhs. Now he has nothing. But when his father died, there were bad omens. The custom to put rice outside overnight as an offering to a father's spirit to make sure that his soul is content. The blackbirds never ate the rice. They didn't even touch it. Thank you. 
leaves moments between the endless chain of flowers, I think of the mothers who placed me here without any order or discernible reason. I've watched them bless silver, gold, and brass with devotion. Inside myself, like fire, are their stories. Inside these moments, I ask them questions with no answers because the chain stretches from before I breathe and spoke. When we do the homum, my mother brings a gold chain with a dangling bar that is hollow inside, called a tie to, with her. When she called, I said yes, even though I didn't think of myself as very religious. How long will it take, I asked. If she had answered, she would have said, all day. Inside, the floor is covered with carpet. I had expected stone. The courtyard around the sanctums is enclosed as a concession to the neighbors. We chant a shloka and then offer ghee to the fire a thousand and one times. It burns in a square pit covered with tinfoil, giving us smoke and heat in return. Its flicker is reflected in the Pujari's glasses, which are as thick as an old bottle that is washed up. The tide's reiterations, like our chants, proceed away from land and towards its own dark heart, a trail of shells and eddies in its wake. By the end of the homum, sweat has collected on our skin. The Pujari writes my name in Sanskrit on a piece of paper and grabs some ashes from the dying fire. He seals them inside. When my mother puts the tie to around my neck, she says it will ward off Shani, or Saturn. She tells me to never take it off. Every year, the lines under my eyes grow more visible. The planets shift their position through the night sky, exerting a different effect than all of us below. We are pulled by invisible threads to predict their paths in the pull of these threads. Physicists supply us with equations. In the east, Sharma has his visions. He gathers charts and maps around him. Sharma can see rivers inside our bodies. Two curve up our backs and form the hood of a cobra. They race to meet each other, like a body approaching its reflection in the mirror. But when the two lack balance, they lose their symmetry. Reflections arrive late, or sometimes not at all. When Sharma looked at me from thousands of miles away in the landscape of his visions, he saw more than imbalance. My snake was asleep. Sharma told my mother the homum in Livermore would bring me back into symmetry by awakening it. In one of Chris's books, The Serpent Power, a description of yoga written in the 1920s by Sir John Woodrow, is a picture of two channels of energy, the Bengala and the Ida, which form the head of the serpent. They traverse up, parallel, from the kidneys to the neck. One of them is a channel of fire. Yogis spend years learning how to manipulate them.
make sure I throw this in, too. A car honks on the street. His baby screams from the back of the house. The flowers form questions and heat. I have no answers. The Pujaris have grown in number, emerging from the midday sun into the shade of our room to shelter the ritual with their bodies, each one wrapped in the red cloth of their profession. They focus on the task at hand, the pratista, which must be finished without pause. These are the hours when we are vulnerable, when chance can put an end to the necessary order of our movements. One of them asks about the video camera, and Ravi repeats what I had told him earlier, except in Tamil. My mother left India three months ago, before the dry season began. The wind kicks up dust where she stays with her brother in the center of town, which aggravates her lungs. Ravi tells them the videotape is for her. When my mother returned from India, she pointed at the house, at history. Do we know who lived here before? She asked if any Native Americans lived in this part of California, in Venetia, on this hill. She knew I had gone to the Mighty Bear Dance on the third weekend of June, just before the summer solstice. The Indian American had met the American Indians in the Sierras and found some kinship. Why was she asking me about Venetian history? She would rather buy a new track home over an old Victorian, and through rituals and the burning of spices, through wall hangings that narrated myths, through the planting of a tulsi plant, which is always found around houses in India, she would make it her own. Two days ago, the trip from Chennai to Rameshram had been on a narrow gauge track. We never went fast and rocked back and forth like a boat in the ocean. Between one cab and the next, a door, blue on the inside, dull red on the outside, open to a stream of rice paddies dotted with palm trees, left rust on our hands. When we bent along the curve, the hot air mixed with soot. Under the bridge, I saw sand the color of the sun. Yesterday, I watched the boats in the ocean from the roof of the hotel. Their sails line their horizon in red, white, and blue. Their woods slid past the water around them gently. The wind blew until they vanished. Closer, by the beach blackened by sewage, a man searched for empty water bottles and dogs barked. Behind them, the fishing boats twirled in circles, held by chains that wouldn't let them go. In 1988, my father lay in his own sweat and heat in an empty house in America. The doctor said he had malaria. Mosquitoes around the house he had grown up in and visited that summer with me had left behind reminders on our skin. He made sure I had quinine after dinner every day because he knew my body wasn't used to India, wasn't used to its germs and parasites. We lay on the roof in the night, surrounded by them. His back ached as he dreamt of the first time he had gone back to India since leaving. The town had erected a tent outside the movie theater 
so they could ask him questions. He was the first to have left Quigley for America. As his fever increased, the air around him grew cold. He was no longer the returning son he had once been. He remembered the constant ring of the phone in his father's store that summer when he had met his four possible wives. He knew he could only marry my mother. They both knew the first time they met. I have a picture. They are on the roof, and the wind is blowing. Hours, minutes, seconds, frames. At some point in your life, the seer says, your shadow fell upon a snake in the forest. lights around us, the visible, have yet to leave their impression. We lock away what we are sure to forget. A year before I performed the Naga Pratista and Ramesram, all my DV tapes plus the hard drive with my edits were lost. Someone had stolen the backpack they were in, leaving only the fading images in my memory. Screaming dogs, a singing monkey, my cousin's face as he watched the camera. The digitized transmission of history from aunt to nephew, grandmother to grandson, mother to son, no longer exists. It took me 10 years to return to India after earning enough money for a ticket, the camera, and 20 hours of tape. I imagine the drive has been erased, leaving no traces of the stories my family told to explain who we are. Its new owners, faced with a void like the myth of the pioneer's empty west, will do what they must. They will populate it. They will construct an archive of their own. Erasing a drive only destroys the surface index, not the binary code that marks the instances of magnetic repulsion and attraction that lie beneath. Behind the veil of its emptiness, a small town in India still remains. The past is written over with new ones and zeros. An entry in the index is created so they can be found again. This new data is stored randomly, and all around it are dispossessed strings of numbers that have no entry, have no name to be called by anymore. When I had stored them, there were light and shade on a dirt road, or the colors of buildings baked by heat. By now, most of those strings will be gone. They have been replaced by the traces of someone I will never know, who bought them for a price that will always be too low. The few that are left are small, part of a face, a sliver of sky, a woman's laugh. If we could ever see them, 
They would haunt us like the fragments of ancient poems that can never be fully reconstructed. A word, perhaps two, fills us with horror. We turn away from a tear in the fabric. We imagine the rest of the poem. We dream of the sky that is missing. The winter my sister called to tell me what happened. I thought of your hair. In my notebooks, Rob again, I drew your ribbons in orange surrounded by black hair, knowing you were upset by suitors who refused you. My mother and father have left for business. The day grows frightful. Am I ugly? Unlovable? Why does no one want me? No one will. I'm in the blue hall with these pesticides, with this rat poison. This one is my groom, my love. After the first monsoon rain, Ganesh stops drinking water. This time, unlike before, he suffers from kidney failure. Mr. Nagi is unable to take care of him, so Ganesh leaves Rishikesh to stay with his mother in Lucknow. I realize now that the first time I called, she was the woman who had answered. For her, Ganesh never renounced the material world which included her and the rest of his family. He was still her Rajkumar. How upset was she when he returned with the uncut facial hair of a sadhu, wrapped in an orange loincloth, suffering from kidney failure? When Ganesh first told me that he survived on a glass of milk each day and existed only on air during the monsoon, I found it hard to believe him. It defied logic. How could he survive? Through research, I discovered that yogis were known to practice extreme forms of physical denial. Some, who abstained from food and water, claimed to live off of only prana, or sustenance through life. Like many stories of the past, I expect these to be exaggerations. But after Ganesha's kidneys fail, I began to question my doubts. This is logical. A person who gives up drinking water would suffer from kidney failure. When Ganesh asked me to follow him around with a video camera so he could prove to the rest of the world that he didn't drink water or eat food, I knew there would always be gaps. Batteries die, the tape ends, machines break. From the blank spaces, the moments lost in the record, Doubts would rise in the minds of the people he was trying to convince. Completely automated surveillance systems, like those used in malls, are able to provide a complete record of what is being watched. With a portable version of such a system, I could conceivably follow him. But who would watch me to ensure that I never averted my gaze, letting Ganesh sneak some food? Another person would have to videotape me as a documenting Ganesh. And then another person would have to watch that person, and so on, until all of us were caught in the circular rooms of our eyes. Behind every fire is something greater. We imagine a center, and as flames that illuminate every direction, and a myriad of spokes that radiate outwards to form a circle with an infinite number of points. If the center were to consume all around it, 
like Shiva in his cosmic dance at the end of existence, or if it were to remain dormant, like the universe before the Big Bang, it would be the only point in the middle of nothingness. The ancient Brahmin seers speculated that it was stationary and beyond space, time, and causation. The rest of us they called Jivatmas. We revolve, undergo birth and death because we are bound. We hurtle through space and measure each second. Centrifugal force, called Maya, pulls us towards the periphery. History is unearthed in Southampton, California. Vents of methane gas shed out of cracks in the dirt beneath the tract homes that stretch from the straits up past our house to Lake Herman. Along Rose Drive, the air clings to swing sets like the spindly whites of old eggs. The earth opens up and swallows entire backyards. Foundations we never had cause to question are now cleaved and splintered. My friend who's grown up in an old Victorian down by the waterfront laughs and says, we all knew that there was a landfill. I dumped stuff there with my dad once or twice. His developers covered it up with dirt and built on top of it. Inside our homes, there was no need to look beyond the milky countertop and the newly installed beige carpet. It softened to our touch. When you do look at what forms the strata beneath, you may be able to find a record of 300 years. In those layers lie cholera and smallpox, tool thatch and acorn. Upon the rolling hills towards Lake Herman, war broke out between the Spaniards and the people of the West Wind. The Spaniards pushed them back to where the city of Sassoon is today. They retreated to the rush huts of their village. Enclosed by the willow saplings and the tall marsh grasses, they used to create their homes. Families chose to die rather than become slaves to the missionaries. They lit their walls on fire and let themselves be carried by the wind. Their ceremonial song, sung at the moment of death, rose into the air. At night, we followed the Feather River from Reno among controlled forest fires. They flicker in the snow on either side of us as we drive to a pink trailer up the road from the express coffee shop in Quincy. After warming up with beer and quesadillas, my friend Dave asks if we want to go on a walk. <coughs> it is midnight and there is no moon to illuminate the mountain tree lines. The road behind the school stretches up into the darkness. He wants us to walk up the hill one by one 50 feet apart, and meet him at the top. We lose sight of each other in the dark, looking at shadows of gray on shades of black. 20 minutes later, I see him leaning against the shell of an abandoned VW bug at the top of the hill. He asks, did you see anything? And I say, I saw shapes in the trees. One by one, he asks each of us as we arrive at the top, after we are all there, he says, this is Cemetery Hill. 
where the Chinese who work in the Transcontinental Railroad were buried. The imprint of what he tells me takes the shapes and assigns them a narrative, forms them into the people who once worked here. At Promontory Point in 1869, Leland Stanford drove a spike of California gold into the earth and joined thousands of miles of Union Pacific track with several hundred miles of Central Pacific track. In the photograph of the driving of the golden spike, none of the Chinese immigrants are visible, even though they, even though they had graded the site hours before. More than a century later, an Asian American documentary filmmaker will superimpose her ancestors onto the space they would have occupied next to the other railroad workers. Their ghosts have finally found embodiment in our history. I tell my mother, they used to live here. They left mounds of discarded shells along the shores of the straits that were ground up under waterfront developments made of sails and yachts, styrofoam swordfish, brick walkways, white paint. Their dead, wrapped in bear hide, were buried under these homes. They wound them round and round with rope. They dug with sticks. When a bird stopped at the lake's edge, they shot it and ate it with fish. But, I tell her, all of this could have been made up, the figment of an anthropologist's imagination. Beneath our carpet, under the gray cement foundation, beneath a layer of trash, under thousands of years of historical conjecture, could be the bones of a patent. They were southern Winton, neighbors with the mighty. The first Spanish explorer to the valley saw a river full of feathers. It led south down to the plains full of antelope and grizzly bear, where the mining, or the people of the valley, died one summer. They lay fevered under shade trees, near water, while the skulls of others lay beside them. In 1830, a sailor returning from the Pacific and another man, a trapper named John Work, carried fever and og to the Central Valley where it killed three-quarters of California's indigenous people. European settlers had evolved with what Annapolis had bred and carried in bogs and the dead still pools of the old world. But the genes of the Americas had had no time to adapt to what the dark ages of Europe had called the stench of swamps, mala aria, or bad air. Unsickled blood flowed through bodies worn thin under the collars of the Spanish and the little they had to eat chipped away at by winter and spring's death. Coyote Man says, back then the people of the valley and the people of the south always fought. Lured by the promise of peace, the south people went to the valley people's roundhouse at Sucker Run for a big feast. The story goes that once the south people were inside, the valley people set it on fire. The South people had great doctors. They called forth the poison air that went here and there, killing all the people in the valley. A decade later, Peter Lassen would follow the Pitt River to Big Meadow, where the mighty always shared the salmon with newcomers. A doctor in the roundhouse sang the change would come, like the wild turkeys and the hogs that bred in the foothills. Thank you.
which of course was impossible. I mean, within the span of a year and a half, uh, one shot that I was really, really invested in, which was on a balcony, and it was of uh, traffic, like buses going along the main road in Puddley. Um, it was reflected on old photos of my aunt's marriage and like an opening of a temple. And so, and it, so it was like the present was reflected on the past, and so there's all these layers to the shot, and I was very invested in it. And so I went back to try to recreate it, and they had decided to uh, widen the road, and they knocked down all the balconies on the main road. So I, didn't, I couldn't even do that, which wasn't like dependent on a person or anything, it was just dependent on the road being still there and in the same shape and form, but even that was foiled. So, you know, like, uh, so the book very much goes through this process with image and memory and then re recreation. Um, and then at a certain point, I started uh, doing time lapse, which for me has similar function as some of the things that I was doing with uh, working or writing from video. Thank you. Thank you for the next question. Yeah. When you're writing, does do the words that you want to say take precedence over the image, or does the image rule how you write? Well, since I'm going through so many iterations, it's hard to say which takes precedence. I think that's just part of my process that um, that they, there's, they're almost <coughs> on equal footing. Um, and especially when I think about how I organize some of this book, like I took pages, um, cut them up into small pieces and like put them all over the floor and started moving them around visually. Um, and so there, there was even a sort of imagistic approach to organization of the, of the pages. All of which was for naught because once it went through the editorial process, like that order was tossed aside and it was reordered and, and then reordered again. So, um, yeah. Um, I had a question. It's probably more of a personal question, but I know obviously your all of your um, books talks does talk a lot about your culture and your family, and I was just wondering their response. Their response has been positive, and in some cases, not so positive. Um, I mean, recently, my uncle got, well, he, uh, he came, we came from India, and then um, the book was presented to him, and he immediately started reading it, right then and there. And so he's on the couch reading it, and then he's, he was getting angrier and angrier, and then he just, you know, just like, it's like, what? Like, this is wrong and this is wrong. Like, you should have called it fiction. And then I was like, no, I mean, this is what my mom said. And then, then it became a fight between my mom and her brother, right? Like, no, grandmother said this. And, and so, you know, like, but I think that was just momentary. Because I think at a certain point you realize they like everyone's recollection of things is is potentially destabilized in some way or another. And then everyone has investment in their own like um, recognition of their history, right? 
like who they are and how they came to be and what that entails. And I think everyone is going to have points of difference. Um, but you know, also, many people, especially in my family, when I was doing this, like their response to the uh, to me videotaping something that was mundane to them, like cutting vegetables or the road, um, was you know unbelievable. They're like, "Why would you do this? Is there money in this? Like, what is the purpose of this?" And then my answer is, "We're not going to convince them in any way." So of course they're just like, "Okay, <laughs> if that's you know what you know what you're going to do." Like, but then of course they helped me completely. Like, um, in the case of like having to redo things, um, my cousin had done this uh, this design with colored chalk called mugu, which is, a, is, is pretty common in, in South India. And um, she did it on the road initially, and it was beautiful, right? Um, and I, I filmed it with a, a Super 8 camera. And then when I went back, I was trying to recreate this. And she didn't live in the same town anymore, and she had a baby, and so she couldn't come to do it. And she was like the to the, the person in the family that was really good at it. And so my other aunt stepped in and we couldn't find a good location, so then we went to a place and then they, you know, they did that just because I wanted that to happen. So I can't, you know, I can only say that a lot of support went into the whole process with a, a great deal of skepticism as to what the purpose was. Um, yeah? I mean, I think it really brings the question of veracity to the fore. Like, there is an image, we think of the image as dominant, like it's the truth, but then we think like, no, it could be framed in a different way. And I think that those things are already embedded in language, like when we're writing. So then I'm constantly sort of battling it out between a, you know, a fiction of truth and then um, <laughs> something that's not true, right? Um, there's there's this con and then there's the other thing about um, represent you know just about questions of representation when it comes to image um, and then you, you you think about the representations that you're conveying in language um, and then sometimes questions of efficiency and also questions of what um, what someone sees in a in in a paragraph versus what someone will see in an image, right? I think it's easier for us to have common ground with an image, like those are stars, but um, but like you know the word cosmos will have like many different interpretations for someone, and so I, I like that sort of tension where like I'm you know something is being presented as more than something else, but in fact it's the opposite, especially with time lapse, like. Um, <coughs> where things can, you know, like, for example, like in one of the time lapses, it seems like they're shooting stars, um, but those aren't shooting stars, those are satellites, because the time lapse is over like a, a night, actually three nights in that case, and so, yeah, like what appears to be a shooting star is actually just a satellite, 
And then the flip side also happens. I think I, in the first piece is another time lapse, which is of the lake and the Sierras. And um, uh, you see like a mist or a fog that sort of circles on top of the lake. It's not something that I saw that night. It was only something that could be seen because of the time lapse, because it was dark, right? And our eyes can't even see that. So there's, yeah. And, is, and couldn't you say that the same thing about language or writing, that sometimes it presents things that um, we can't readily access? Um, so there's this tension that's yeah, always at play. And certain concepts get pushed to the fore. question. Um, one of the things that I noted, and, and this was the, the first kind of instance that really it kind of popped out was when uh, this, the story about, um, I believe her mother, when she's talking and whether she, if she's tired or she's concerned, worried about her son, mm -hmm. you know, sort of going into her other language. And then it seems that the as I recall it, that they're kind of burden of the spaces that the language doesn't fill falls to you. Mm -hmm. and, it, and so this idea of um, gaps, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of, whether it's, you know, places where there's disconnection or sort of the ineffability of experience, you know, there's just, um, it, I wonder, it seems at the same time that there's an identification that some things can't be kind of captured, there's also a kind of interest in what might be still graspable even when it's not supposed to be mm -hmm. in your work. So I kind of am seeing that kind of tension there that, well, what if we sort of imagine that that material is is, is sort of there, we know that it's there in some kind of um, almost, if there's a shadow of something that remains of the material that might be covered over by by the person who's, who stole it. So I, mm -hmm. this was kind of interested in this tension, you know, sort of identifying or recognizing that that, that exists, these kind of spaces, while there seems to be an interest in sort of questioning that, mm -hmm. what you do with that, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, it's, it seems like the only way that I can approach, um, like, myself as, as, as a product of history, right, is, like, to notice the gaps and then question those gaps, and then try to, um, I guess, narrow them. But then it seems like that's such an imaginative act. Um, but yet so many of the things that we know about our world could be questioned in the same way and could be rendered as purely imaginary, right? I mean, even if we think about, like, <laughs> like sort of like the myth of, like, oh, prehistoric man, like, but how, you know, we could never really know prehistoric man without violating the idea of prehistoric man because suddenly we're there, like changing the whole equation, right? So here I am looking at things and then by the process of looking at things, like it, get, it gets overturned in a certain way. Like how can you do a ritual but then videotape it at the same time? Like is it still a ritual? Um, and then if you already have a skeptical position to what you're doing, like are you religious? And then but then as, a, as someone who's born Hindu, like, it's de facto, you do all these things that's part of your culture um, and not necessarily question the motivations behind it. So then there's also a like, sort of fragment or a disconnect or a gap. Um, even like, <laughs> um, 
in in like the traditional Hindu wedding, right before you get married, um, you, your dad, and your mom, and the priest are underneath like a a sari or a blanket, and the priest um, in Sanskrit will tell your father the secret to life, and then he will then relay that to you, but then it's in Sanskrit, so you don't know <laughs> what it is, and there are very few people who will know since it's, you know, and so, but then like it's got a position, it's got a, a moment, and we know this is happening, but we'll never know what just happened, which I think is, I think it's maybe, at least for me, it's like how my experience in the world has been. Um, yeah. Um. All right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it's gonna sound like forceful questions, but it's because my work is like so closely aligned to like theoretically what you're doing. And I'm having like a nervous breakdown about what I'm writing. So this is a good time to ask you how you deal with like identity and like you, in the beginning, you kind of, it seemed like you were gonna say, I'm from India. And then you're like, my parents are from India. And that kind of just like, okay, so now how do we mm -hmm. explain? Um, I guess you were talking about like recreating these memories, which but then those memories don't exist anymore. The buildings are gone or like the balconies are gone and you're trying mm -hmm. to, especially if you're trying to recreate like an experience that has been passed down through, to you through stories and kind mm -hmm. of a culture that you're not necessarily, like you were like descended yourself and then came back and then tried to recapture it, right? And recreate it in a way that you can't, or you keep trying to, but it's like clearly kind of escaping. I'm wondering like what your take on identity is and mm -hmm. the violence of that kind of like reimagining. Uh, well, I don't I don't think of it as being particularly violent. Um, I think of like I mean sure I'm like highlighting the failure of such a, of a quest. But I can't think of many things in, in life that don't, you know, have like faults, right? there's gonna always be a flaw, but then here I am asking people for their stories. If I did not ask them for those stories, those stories would be lost. And even if those stories are false, like which in this, in this book, there are things like one of my aunts tells me that I'm just like, that is so unimaginable. But yet I wrote it down, I took it as, <coughs> as a fact, and then I preserved it because, you know, she's gonna pass away she's not going to be able to say that story again, and no one is going to be able to record it. Um, so then, like, am I, do I contain that as part of my identity? I think I do. But at the same time, I'm more than that as well, right? Like, identity is always in flux, and it's changing constantly. And then sometimes maybe being precise about who you are and thinking of yourself as a process. Um, is more helpful. So like, yeah, like I was like, I'm Indian, but no, actually, my parents are from India. I was born here. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, like, what I didn't say was that, but that's yeah. what I was thinking, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, even with that, like, oh, I'm, you know, uh, Indian American. But then there's questions like, well, Indian Americans, they, they write books, and they write books about this. And what are you doing writing about Native Americans, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is yet another question, but um, and you know I. But then I'm also writing something a friend told me, and I have their permission to do so. I asked, right? 
and and like just like the videoing of the ritual, there's always ethical components, which I think is really important. Like because what if you know who are you as a person, or what is your identity if you don't like address ethics of, of what that what that entails, right? Um, so in the case of the video of the ritual, the the pujaris would only let me record, um, I think six or seven hours of it. In the last two hours, I couldn't record. They were like, you cannot record that. And so I had to turn the, the, the camera off, and then the rest of it was done without any sort of recording. Is um, there like a specific reason those two hours couldn't be recorded? You don't know? I'm not sure. Not hey, is it proprietary? <laughs> Could be. Like, did they not want someone else to recreate their ritual? Because it was the ritual that they have been doing for millennia. Um, I don't know. Or maybe they just like, that's enough. <laughs> you know? Like, that thing's been there, like, collecting oil, like, whatever. Like, it doesn't need to persist in the background. Um, I hope that helped. No, it did. I mean, I guess about everything else is just conversational stuff that I can ask you about. <laughs> I wonder if this might have something to do with some of the discussion about identity. I don't know if there's someone who had um, but I, I was thinking about, um, was it an uncle who, who had gone back? I forgot what, within your work, um, what relative it was who had been the first to leave. Oh, my dad. Your dad. Okay. Yeah. And, and sort of this, um, this interesting relationship that he has upon returning and sort of, so there's this interest, there can be this interesting discussion about, um, sort of the old country and mm -hmm. the relationship of, of the, the sort of the first generation of immigrants to that is a kind of stable place and a stable identity. Mm -hmm. But what often seems to happen too is with the distance of time and the distance of sort of that movement um, between spaces, there's also a kind of sh shakiness about what seemed to be a very stable identity at some point. Mm -hmm. And that there's some kind of sometimes a, a sort of witnessing of, um, of that kind of effort to sort of manage that relationship. I mean, is, is that part of what you were describing in that? It sort of is seeing that in your father as he was? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean like, well, also his distance from, from the place that he grew up, because he's the one who ends up getting malaria in that instance, but he's so careful to make sure that I don't get malaria. He's like, oh, you weren't born here, you're not, you don't have this like, you know, like this immunity or, or this is, you know, this is, this place will not treat you as well as it treats me. But then it's he who gets malaria, right? Um, which sort of points out that like uh, time has changed him as well, right? Like there's a distance between like the India that he had left and the person he's come back as, right? And I, and I, I think I tried to talk some about, like they, in other parts of the book where there's this sort of freeze of like their imagination of India, like the one that they know, mm -hmm. it's, it's somewhat frozen. While the India that's there now, and the one that I'm experiencing or anyone else's, it's changed, right? Mm -hmm. And so when, when, you grow, when I was growing up in, in you know, the Bay Area in New York, it's like that vision of India is the one that was narrated to me. And that's the one that I imagined when you know when I'm thinking about India. But when I go there, it's it's radically different, 
right? Um, and that, you know, whatever they, they experience of it, it's not the same for everyone or what's actually happening in the country. Um. <laughs> Any more questions? I, I hope you enjoyed my reading, and thank you. It looks like this. <laughs> <laughs> you can find it on Amazon or the bookstore, maybe. If <laughs> um, eventually, the library will have it. Eventually, the library will have it. <laughs>